Bible is not a, a rule book or, or particularly like a theological encyclopedia. Um, it's not a collection of stories like Aesop's fables where there's like each story has like a moral of the story that's meant to kind of display and, and direct you on how to live your life. Um, it, it's, it's not, that's not the case. Right? If that was the case, the Bible would be primarily about you. But newsflash, it's not about you or me. Uh, it's not. The Bible, when it's read rightly, is instead a single story from Genesis to Revelation. It's one single story that's all about Jesus, right? It, it's not about you. It's all about God, right? God creates the world at the beginning, and the, the, the world's devastated uh, uh, because of our turning away from Him and sin, he re-enters the world to pursue and rescue us and redeem us. And, and one day, Jesus is returning to restore and recreate the entire earth, everything. There's the single storyline throughout. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And the first three chapters of Genesis, of course, which is where we're going to be camping out, are, are foundational to this single story. They are foundational to our understanding of the gospel. And if we don't have a little bit of a, a grasp on what's going on in Genesis 1 through 3, it's hard for us to actually really truly grasp and get the gospel in, in the ways that we really need to, to understand the, the weight of sin and the weight of death and separation from God that Jesus rescues us out of by his life, death, and resurrection. The, these are uh, not mere stories here that we're looking at. These are the very words of God, the very words of God revealed by God that we might know him, that we might understand the condition that we all find ourselves in, that we might realize the redemption that's made available to us through Jesus Christ, and that we might have a greater hope uh, that, that Jesus is returning, a clearer hope that he is returning to restore and renew all things. So we're going to begin in the beginning, right? And take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Ironically, it's on page one of those Bibles on your row, right? That makes sense, right? So let's stand together. Let's turn there in your, in your Bibles. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your, your word. And we thank you that the Bible is not just a, a collection of nice stories to encourage us or enlighten us in, in some kind of moral of the story kind of way, but that it is one singular story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Lord, would you, would you awaken our hearts even in a new way? Those of us who maybe grown up in the church hearing this our, our whole lives. And, and those of us who maybe today's the first time we've been in a church. Um, would you awaken our hearts to, to hear the, the single story of the scriptures. To, to come to a greater understanding of, of where it starts here today. And, and who you are. And, and to be just mesmerized uh, by the, the wonder and the complexity and the glory of who you are, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may have a seat. 
as we zoom in here to the beginning of the story here in Genesis 1, if you look carefully at these opening verses here, um, you get a little glimpse of actually what was going on before the beginning, right? Before the beginning. Uh, of what there was before the beginning of creation. And we're going to make three observations. It's convenient for a sermon, uh, as always, right? Three observations of, of what was there before the beginning here in these first two verses. The first is this. Before the beginning, there was God, right? Before the beginning, there was God. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Those first four words, in the beginning, God, right? In other words, when the world began, God was already there. He was already there. According to the Bible, God is the only one, the only object that has no beginning, who always is, who always has been, always will be. And because of that, God alone, uh, that God alone has no beginning. Therefore, everything that exists finds its origin, finds its root, finds its source in Him. Now, there are, of course, those who would argue that there, there was no God before the beginning and that there is no God now, that there's no God, period. Uh, but if you're going to embrace that, I, I want to help you understand what all you're really embracing in thinking that. Because if, if you're going to embrace that, then it means you're embracing a whole lot more than just saying, I don't believe there's a God. Right? I, I can look at my uh, phone. I'm not going to take it out because I feel like that would be weird. But, but if I look at my phone, right? you look at your, your iPhone or whatever phone you got, and, and you look at it, you can, you can tell right? just by looking at it. I, I know that it was designed for a purpose because I know somebody made it right? Apple made my phone, right? And and some designer designed my phone and made it to do the things that it's supposed to do. And so it's supposed to do a great many things for me, right? I'm supposed to like, you know, very basic level, make calls, send text messages, check my email, that sort of thing. It's supposed to navigate me and not then lead me into like uh, driving into a lake a la Michael Scott on the office, (laughs) right? Um, it's supposed to help me take like, uh, you know, really killer photos. Like I'm a professional photographer. That's what it tells me I will be able to do, uh, on and on and on. Right. And because it has a designer who designed it with a purpose like that, um, I can make a value judgment about my phone based on how well it performs based upon the expectations I have of what it's going to do for me and how it's going to do those things and how it fulfills its purpose. You see, because with my phone, its essence precedes its existence. The essence precedes its existence. But listen, if you deny that there is a God, and therefore accept that human beings and everything else just happened to be, just came out of nothing, came out of nowhere, whatever, right? That means that there is no essence that precedes that existence. There's no designer, and therefore there is no purpose for which we are designed, because we have no designer who designed us with a purpose. Follow? Maybe? Uh, Which means you really can't make any value judgments. Any value judgments. If we just happen to be, and there is no designer, no purpose behind our coming to be, then that means there is no purpose for which we were made. Which therefore means we can do whatever we want. And no one can make a value judgment and say, this is right or this is wrong. This is good. This is evil. 
Right? This is, of course, I'm kind of stealing this from uh, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, who tried to promote this as this kind of liberating freedom worldview. Right? You can do what you want because there's nothing you are supposed to do. And, of course, Sartre, just like everybody else, went on to make a whole lot of value judgments after that, too. Right? That, that you have to be quite brave to kind of truly embrace this kind of thinking. But the problem is that you have to be more than just brave. You have to be consistent. And that's the trouble, right? Because nobody is consistent. Everyone, everyone of us makes value judgments all the time about this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, right? And it turns out that functionally, probably most of us, uh, well, most of us who would say, I don't believe there's a God, really, we, we're probably more aligned with the quote that comes from the author Julian Barnes, which is, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Right? In other words, I don't want to believe that there's a God because I don't want the constraints of believing that there's a God. But yet, I, I want to keep some of the value judgments. I want to keep some of the, the guardrails and still kind of have both. Right? No one is consistent. And here's why. Because in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Right? There was a God. There is a God. Romans 1 says that we all know this deep down within the core of who we are. Even if we don't know it up here or want to acknowledge it up here, deep within us, we we know that there is a God. Even if you deny it in the way that you live. To say that you can live any way you want is a way of thinking of freedom. But the Bible, I would tell you, has a better way. A better way. Uh, like, think about this, right? If you, not a lot of birds in the air this time of the year, but if you get to go outside and it's nice and there's a lot of birds kind of just soaring, gliding through the air, you're watching them in flight, right? Or, you know, it's Shark Week on Discovery Channel and you're watching the sharks just do what sharks do, right? That's freedom. As they submit to their design. And their intended purpose and what they were created to do. That's actual freedom, right? Now, a hawk isn't exactly free when it tries to run on the ground to get away from something chasing it. Or if it was to try to swim in the ocean. That's not exactly freedom for a hawk, right? Uh, And, you know, sharks, not exactly free trying to fly. Except, of course, in the cinematic universe that is Sharknado. Um, (laughs) Right? They're only truly free when they submit to their design. And it's the same with you and me. It's the same with you and me. Before the beginning, there was God. He created us. He designed us. And we're only truly free as we submit to our design. And to the designer. The, the creator who, who made us. And, and so we have to find out about him. We have to find out about why he made us. And one way to do that, an important way to do that, that must be a part of how we find that out, is by reading the Bible. Going to the Word. And kind of in a general way, understanding who is God? What has he made us to do? What, are, what is the purpose of humanity? What's the purpose of being a human being in this world? But coupled with that, because each of us, you have unique gifts and talents that you've been blessed with by your Creator... You have passions and things like that. So coupled with reading the Bible, you also need to be deeply rooted in community. Where other people deeply know you and you deeply know them. And they can help you discern with God. You need a prayer life with God. That you are are discerning with Him who you are. What you're made to be. what, What He's created you to do and to be in line with His design and His intentions for your life. Right? We, we, We need that together. 
Your purpose is rooted in him because before the beginning, there was God. That's the first observation. Here's the second. Before the beginning, there was love. Before the beginning, there was love. Where, where are you seeing that, you ask? Right? Because like, I don't see the word love in the text anywhere. Well, let's look again real closely. Verses 1 and 2. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was, was hovering over the face of the waters. Right? So verse 1, you have God right, creating the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And that word hovering, just so you know, is this, this Hebrew word that basically means a mother bird like fluttering over her young. Right? It's a very intimate, very beautiful kind of image. But then look at verse 3. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Right? Notice that God doesn't make light. He doesn't like craft it together with, you know, like he doesn't, he doesn't make, he just, he says it, right? He says, let there be light and then there's light, right? And as you read the rest of Genesis 1, going through the creation account, God continues as he makes things. How does he make them? He says them. Let there be, boom, there is, right? And that's, that's what we read throughout Genesis by his word, right? By his word. And so in these opening verses of Genesis, you have God and you have the spirit of God. And God and the spirit of God are creating through the word. Right? God, the word, and the spirit of God all involved in creation together. Those are the hints. Right? That in the New Testament, John in his gospel kind of picks up on and reveals to us. The Holy Spirit reveals to us in the words of John's gospel there at the beginning of his gospel. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And John makes clear to us, explicit in John chapter 1, who the Word is, as he continues in verse 14 and then verses 16 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Right? What the Bible teaches from the opening of Genesis throughout the entirety of the scriptures is that there is one God who is three persons. A triune God. Trinity, right? Trinity. Now, that's interesting because the word Trinity does not appear anywhere in the Bible, right? And yet the Trinity is everywhere throughout the Bible. Uh, Let me give you a definition, right? Here's Here's a real simple definition. The Trinity is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are each fully and equally God in eternal relation with each other and and with distinction in role, okay? That's a definition of the Trinity, and I'm going to try so this is not to be too much of uh, theology 101 kind of here, but, but I want to walk through some basic things here that we, we need to know, right? The doctrine of the Trinity essentially holds these three truths together. First truth, there's only one God, right? Throughout the Bible, that, that is explicitly made clear again and again and again. Let me give you two places, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, to just show you an example, right? Deuteronomy 6.4. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then again, in the New Testament, James 2, 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, right? James saying, even the demons acknowledge that there's one God, and they shudder at him, right? There's one God. That is the clear teaching of Scripture from start to finish. There is one God. Second truth that's held together here is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equally declared to be God throughout the Bible, okay? You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who's going to deny that God the Father is declared to be God in the Bible, right? I mean, that's just kind of right there in the name, every time he's mentioned God the Father, right? Uh, And the Son, we just read John chapter 1. Uh, as one piece of evidence, and there are many, many other places throughout the New Testament where Jesus is, is repeatedly declared to be God by, by both others and by himself without apology or without correction. He, he's very clear about who he is. He's God, right? John eight fifty eight. now this isn't up there, but you know, before Abraham was, I am, right? Before Abraham was, I am. Like, I am the I am that was talked about back in Exodus. That's me. I'm God. Right? It very explicitly, again and again. And the Holy Spirit is also declared to be God, sharing the attributes of God throughout the Bible. And one example very explicitly where we see this is in, in Acts chapter 5, where uh, the, the early church sold this property, they're taking care of one another's needs, and they're, they're, they're selling their property, taking the proceeds, giving it all to distribute to those in need. And there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who hold back a portion for themselves. And Acts 5, 3 and 4 says this, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. Because the Holy Spirit is God. That's the second truth. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each equally declared to be God. The third truth held together in that is that Though one God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, right? They are three distinct persons. They are not three different manifestations of God, right? This isn't the shack, okay, Uh, which unfortunately continues to be a very popular book and even more unfortunately now is going to be a a big movie this year, which I'm sure as Christians we're all going to be encouraged to go watch. Uh, But let me just say, uh, this is maybe a little side note. Not everything that comes out with a Christian label and a Christian promotion should we as Christians embrace and celebrate and participate in, right? There's some problems with the shack because the shack represents the Trinity as manifestations, as God shape-shifting his his embodiment and, and personality based on the person of the Trinity that he is, right? Which is modalism, which we'll talk about in a second, which is a heresy that was ruled out immediately in the early church because by a plain reading of scripture, it just doesn't work because we see in numerous places all three persons of the Trinity together at work like we just read in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, 1 through 3, right? Together at work in creation, they're all three present. They're not like shifting roles here back and forth. Or how about the baptism of Jesus? 
All three present, Matthew three sixteen through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You have the Son being baptized. You have the Holy Spirit descending on him, and you have God the Father from heaven speaking out loud where people can hear, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased, right? As you read through the Bible, you also see these three persons of the Trinity functioning in distinct roles to to accomplish creation here in the beginning, but also to accomplish our salvation. Uh, You can read Ephesians chapter 1 a little bit later, and you see this at work. God the Father planning our rescue in eternity past. God the Son, Jesus Christ, coming and carrying out and accomplishing our rescue through his life, his sinless life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection, And God, the Holy Spirit, awakening our hearts, enabling us to even receive the gift of salvation and to trust in Christ, right? And then continuing to renew us and sanctify us day by day as we walk with Christ in faith, right? You see them working together in that way. If if the word Trinity Trinity is is not in the Bible, where does it come from? Um, I'm glad you asked and we're able to get the words out, Um, right? The doctrine of the Trinity where it comes from, is it kind of rose from the early church theologians grappling with this question, who is Jesus, right? Who is Jesus? And what was going on is there were a lot of doctrinal errors, right? Honestly, I just had a conversation a moment ago outside here where where I was talking with another uh, member of our congregation here about just how there's more almost you can explain the Trinity by what it's not than what it is, right, brother? And, 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 uh, and, And that's kind of where it comes from, is talking about what the Trinity is not, Right? So there were some major doctrinal errors, and unfortunately, many of these doctrinal errors are still around us, very much so today, like in things like the shack. Right? Uh, and so you need to be aware of them. The first one is modalism. Modalism, which is a heresy that teaches that the persons of, of God are, all, are ways that God expresses or manifests himself. The founder of modalism was a, a guy named Sibelius, and, and basically it believes that there's one God, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God, but that they are modes of existence, that they exist in succession, but not simultaneously. So when God is Father, He's Father, but then when He becomes Son, He's no longer, He ceases to be Father, He becomes Son. And then when He becomes Holy Spirit, He ceases to be the Father or the Son. Right? Modes of existence. And this is, by a plain reading of Scripture, was ruled to be a heresy. But yet, you have churches today that still hold to that position. Like those who hold to a oneness theology, a certain branch, uh, there's a certain branch of Pentecostals, oneness Pentecostals that tend to kind of hold out in that camp and, and kind of function that way. Now, I'm not saying all Pentecostals are oneness Pentecostals. That's not what I'm saying. Right? We've got good brothers and sisters here at other churches in town that absolutely are Pentecostal, but they are Trinitarians, okay? But there are those out there who hold to a oneness theology. And some of the key things you can hear, the language that you will often hear that might tip you off, is they will talk about the persons of the Trinity not as persons, but as manifestations. Manifestations. If you hear that word, you need to ask some questions. Another thing is they'll only baptize in the name of Jesus. They don't baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They baptize only in the name of Jesus. If you hear that, you need to ask some questions. Not saying just call him a heretic right off the bat, but ask some questions, okay? Find out what's going on there. Another uh, 
early misunderstanding, you know, doctrinal error. It was Arianism, right? And this view uh, was uh, pro- propelled by a guy named Arius, go figure, right? Who proposed that Jesus be understood as a highly exalted being, but not God, right? A highly exalted being, but not God. There's a fourth century bishop named Athanasius, really good dude, right? Who's like, he saw the severity of this issue. He's like, the very atoning work of Christ is at stake here if we get this wrong, right? Because if Jesus is not both God and man, then, then we are still dead in our sins, because if he's not both fully God and fully man, he is not able to mediate between God and men. He is not able to live the sinless life that we need. He's not able to mediate in his death you know, payment for all of our sins. He must be both God and man. And this took a church council, the Council of Nicaea uh, in 325, and they wrestled through and debated this. It took some time to work out. But eventually, at that council, they affirmed the deity of Christ and, and, and pers- uh, uh, made the Nicene Creed that we have today. Uh, but today you have, you have the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They essentially are Arians, right? They believe that, that Jesus is a, uh, you know, exalted being, but he's not God. And they have their own version of the Bible that they have edited to make clear that he's not God. And then there are those who hold to a view of the Trinity as three distinct gods, like the Mormons, Right? Tritheism, which Mormons is really polytheism because there's more than three gods. There's all kinds of, of gods at work there, which is immediately dismissed because we just read, and you can read again and again throughout the Bible, there is one true God, only one true God. So that's not workable. Here's what I really hope to get at, though. In community group this week, you can kind of dig in and ask some more questions about the Trinity and wrestle with that and try to explain it and describe it because no one can really do that. But, um, but it's worth wrestling with and trying to figure out and seeking the truth. The beauty of a, a God who's too complex for us to understand is, is a good thing, I think. I mean, if we could figure him all out, I don't know if that's a God I want to follow, a God that I can design and completely explain in my own feeble brain, right? We want a God who's beyond our capabilities and our comprehension, a glorious God. And that's, that's who we have. But here's what I really hope to get at. There are some enormous implications of this truth that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we look here at the beginning of Genesis. What this means is that before the beginning, there was God. And God is community. God is community. God has always been community within the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This perfect relationship of love, right? And so this means that relationships are are so central to who we are and what we're about, to everything, right? They're they're so significant. Uh, You can't even explain how significant they are, right? If you think about it, most worlds of the world's religions believe in, in one God for the most part. Um, uh, but they see this God kind of as a solo, kind of unipersonal, isolated God apart from his creation. He's by himself until he creates anything. So in other words, there can be no love because there's nothing to love. It's just that God until he creates. And so creation uh, for that God comes out of power. Like power uh, comes before love. He creates out of power, and then only after he creates is he able to love the, the beings and the things that he has created. 
It's, it's, love is secondary. Right? It's peripheral to a God like that. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that we worship. Jesus tells us in John chapter 17, as he's praying there, that for all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, from before the foundation of the world, Jesus says, they have been just glorifying one another. Just glorifying one another. What does that mean, to glorify one another? We don't talk about, let me glorify you today, right? Uh, it means to, to praise. It means to honor. It means to bow down, to, to submit to, and to kind of lift up the other instead of yourself. It means to love. It means to love. In other words, before the beginning, there was love inside God. And so love is central to who God is. It's central to the essence of who God is before the beginning. God was love. Not, not, not that God was loving. God was love in himself. Perfect love being passed back and forth between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity past. Knowing and loving and delighting in each other. And it's only out of an overflow of that love that our God creates everything. You see, love precedes power. Love is the power that that actually propels creation that he creates. He creates out of that all things. All things. Everything that that is comes out of love and relationship. That's the reality that we see here. And here are the implications for you and me. It means that we're made for relationships and we'll talk about what it means to be made in the image of God later, and we'll get into more detail. But, but we're made in the image of a God who is community, which means we're made for community. We're made to know and be known. We're made to know and be known by our God. We're made to know and be known by, by other people in community, in deep, deep relationship. We, we, it's essential. It's central to who we are. But there's more. Because this doesn't just show us that, that relationships are central. It shows us the nature of those relationships, what they're to be like. Because within the persons of the Trinity, there's this perfect love, this glorifying of one another. And as you, as you dig into what that means, at its core, it's showing us that perfect love looks like being other-oriented. It looks like self-abdication. It looks like self-giving as we love others. The essence of reality before the beginning has always been to put the needs of the other ahead of your own. That's the essence of reality. To deny yourself, to give of yourself, to love the other. C.S. Lewis talks about this in in his book, The Problem of Pain. And he says, self-giving is the absolute reality. It's the absolute reality, self-giving. The only thing outside the system of self-giving, he says, is hell. Hell's... It, it, hell's fierce imprisonment of self-absorption, right? Let me tell you, like Crystal and I, we're halfway through year 17 of being married, which for some of you is not that long, and for some of you is like, sounds like an eternity, right? Um, and let me just tell you, like at this point in our marriage, and I think she would tell you the same, we feel more deeply connected with one another, we, we, we feel more in love with one another than we ever have in, in, the, in the time of our marriage, And the reason for that is because through a lot of mistakes and a lot of idiot moves, largely by me, right, we've learned that love is is self-giving, self-abdication, right? And we still got a lot to learn. Like, there's not perfection in that. Um, There's still a lot of mistakes and still a lot of things we got to work through all the time. 
But the reason that we keep growing more in love with each other is that we, we learn to repent more and deny ourselves more to one another. By God's grace, this church is here. And we're, we're, we're you know, into year five of this church being public and, and going. And I would tell you that the reason this church is here is because of the many members and leaders of this church who are willing to deny themselves and give of themselves to, to see it continue to be here and grow and to love others ahead of themselves. Right? Now, before you take that too far, and you think I'm saying, well, to love someone means you let them walk all over you, you let them abuse you, absolutely not. Right? Because that's not loving someone, to let them walk all over you, to let them hurt you, let them sin against you. That's not loving them. Right? That, that, that's not love. Right? You have to draw a line somewhere for their sake. That's what's loving about drawing the line. It's because you're drawing it not for your sake, not for your selfishness, but you draw a line for their sake. Right? To call them out in that. I don't want anyone to take this too far and, and go home and, and misapply that. Um, mutual self-giving relationships. That is what was before the beginning. Now let me make one last observation, and I will try to wrap it up quickly. Before the beginning, there was darkness. Right? Before the beginning, there was darkness. Look one more time at verse 2. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of of the waters. Now, now let me be clear. I'm not saying that before the beginning there was like this raw material, raw matter that God used to create. No, before the beginning, God creates out of nothing. He creates all things out of nothing. He creates all things out of himself. But as he begins creation, as it says here, as God begins to create the heavens and the earth, uh, before creation really begins to take shape throughout the rest of chapter 1, uh, it, it says that the earth was without form and void. So there was this kind of shapeless chaos in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, right? And then it says darkness was over the face of the deep. And then as God begins to create by his word, the darkness and the chaos dispels, right? It's driven back. God says, let there be light, right? And orderliness. And it drives back the chaos. It drives back the darkness. Now what we see later and what we experience in our own reality of the the lives that we're living in is because of sin, right? What does sin do? What does sin do? Well, sin unravels creation. Sin unravels the light and the orderliness that God creates with and actually brings back chaos and brings back darkness and kind of undoes what God has done in many ways. It's our sin Right? You look at the world, you look at the brokenness of our world, it is our sin that has unleashed all sorts of chaotic consequences and darkness in our lives. It's our sin that did that. What can be done? What could be done? Well, God would be completely just as the perfectly righteous God that he is to just be, leave us in it and be done with us. But that's not who he is. Right? He's not only perfectly righteous and just, he's also merciful and gracious. And in his mercy, in his grace, in his love, he pursues us. He comes after us, comes after us, right? The word became flesh. The word became flesh and lived for us the life we couldn't. The, the word became flesh and died the death that we deserve. 
Right? Matthew 27, 45, right? during Jesus' crucifixion, you read this. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And then it continues. It says, I'm paraphrasing now. It says that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, there's an earthquake. Right, the, the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom, torn in two. Um, it says that uh, tombs were sprung open. It's kind of one of those weird verses that we just don't talk about a lot, right? Uh, tombs were sprung open, and uh, people who were dead are resurrected, and they're walking around town saying, hey, what's happening, right? Um, that's what's going on. What's happening, right? What's happening? The unraveling, right? The chaos, the darkness that we created, was falling on our Lord, was falling on our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus the Creator, right? Who nothing was made that has been made without Him. All things were made through Him. He, he came to us. The Word became flesh. And He came not to rub our nose in the mess that we created, but He came to let the darkness fall on Himself, that we might be recreated with Him, right? We might be recreated with Him. Here is ultimate reality in Christ. Self-abdication, self-giving, love. Jesus, the judge who came not to bring judgment, but to bear it in our place. The Father sent him to take what we deserve so that the Holy Spirit could come into our lives and begin to remake us and drive the darkness back out of us once more. That's self-giving. Right? This is love that has existed for all eternity and has been planned for you before the beginning. Right? Before the beginning. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper as we do each week. And as we prepare to come to the table today, I want us to fix our hearts on, on our triune God, our Creator, our, our Savior. The Father who loved us and chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The, the Son, Jesus Christ, who came and let the darkness fall on Him in our place. And the Spirit who awakens our hearts to faith and continues to renew us day by day as we press in and walk with Jesus by faith. What a great and marvelous God that we cannot comprehend. Right? Let it, let's give Him glory today as we come, as we share in the bread and the cup representing Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you, that in order to drive back the darkness so that once more there can be light. Right? We have a few different stations around the room. There's one in the back up here up front. These two sections come and peel. You guys go to the back, redirecting up top. You have a station, I believe, again. Uh, and so uh, we will proceed in those ways. We offer both juice and wine to take as you as, you, as your conscience allows, the wine is in the glasses marked with twine. Break off a piece of the bread and dip it in. Right, if you're not a believer in Christ, as believers are coming forward to share in this field, this is an opportunity for you to respond to the gospel. And I pray that you would find today true freedom. Not, not a freedom to do whatever you want, but freedom to be who you were created to be by your creator. And that you would see the love of God, the self-giving love of Jesus, and that you would take him in, in faith this morning. Pastors and prayer responders will be out here just outside this wall. If you go around outside, we'd love to visit with you, love to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. May we all live our lives deeply connected to Jesus, deeply connected to one another, that we might continue to glorify him in self-giving love. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to be together, to worship you, uh, to celebrate the gift of new life in, in these children that we've dedicated this morning, uh, and to celebrate just the gift of life in general that you've given to us out of your love, your perfect, self-giving, self-abdicating love that created this world. And your perfect, self-giving love that came to live and die and rise for us, that we might know you once more, that we might see the darkness driven back and, and live in the light, giving of ourselves for your glory. Lord, would you have your way in our hearts today? Would you, would you move us to respond as you would lead us? And Lord, would you use us to reflect your glory, to reflect your perfect love in this city and in this world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.